Well, we all returned home from a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles, where we celebrated not only the Feast of Tabernacles, but the last great day. Uh, we celebrated before that the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, very important days. But we were shocked to learn about the brutalities that took place on the last great day. And as a side point, it makes us wonder the last great day is an opportunity for all who have not really had a chance to have their chance. And when you look at the brutality of some of the things that were done there, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a question, I guess, uh, can someone go too far? Uh, but uh, we, we do believe that all will be given their chance. You know, when you are taught from childhood, from, you know, just from the time that you can remember to hate somebody, uh, that's something that's hard to overcome, and uh, we do look forward to the time when those individuals will come to such a heartfelt repentance that, kind of like the Apostle Paul, um, saw himself very differently than perhaps the other apostles because he had persecuted the church of God and put some to death, and, as a matter of fact. Well, this attack and other world-shaking events remind us that time may be shorter than we expected. There was a time back in the 1960s when we thought that the world could uh, come to a, a climax and that Christ would return somewhere around 1975. When I was an ambassador of college graduating in 1969, many of us talked about getting married on the rocks. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, going to a place called Petra, and that was our opportunity to get married because we might not get married before that. You know, the, the fact that Christ is coming soon is something that most of us look forward to, most of us in this room, and especially as we get older and especially as we have our aches and pains that we experience, we're looking forward to that time. And we look forward to the time when war will come to an end and all the heartache, all the suffering, not only that we experience, but that we experience around us will come to an end. And so we look forward to that time very much. I remember when I first started attending services in Santa Barbara, California, there were a couple fellows outside the hall as we were coming in, and we started talking a little bit there, and, and one of them said he couldn't, Christ could not come soon enough. It was, if it was yesterday, it wouldn't be soon enough. And at age 19, I thought, he really can't be serious. He's saying that because that's the thing to say, but he can't really believe that. Well, I've changed that opinion uh, long since that time. But we have a dilemma before us. We have a need to warn the world, to talk about the approaching climax at the end and Christ's return, and warn people that the world is going to get worse before it gets better, and that some terrible times are yet ahead of us, even in this country. We have that responsibility. We are to warn this nation, as it tells us in Ezekiel third chapter and Ezekiel 33, that we are to be a watchman and to warn the Israelite nations and others of what is to come. We have that responsibility. But at the same time, we need to be sure that people have hope that there is something better beyond. 
And I, I talked about this subject a little bit at the end of the Council of Elders meetings that we had a little over a week ago. And I read a letter that had been written to me about three decades ago, and I'd like to do that here today. And I apologize to those who were there who have already heard it, but that's only a very few of you, just a minority in this room, half dozen, eight people, whatever it might be. I also recorded it in a January-February Living Church News, or wrote it in there, so you can read it uh, firsthand at that point. So I apologize if it's a little bit repetitious, but it does bring out a point that I think is very important. This letter was written by a 16-year-old girl, and she expresses what many young people think. And we have so many young people here, teenagers, young adults who are just beginning life in so many ways. And I think it's important for us to understand how other people might see the return of Jesus Christ because the title of this sermon is, Will Christ's Return Mess Up Your Life? Will it mess up your life, your plans? This young lady as I say, 16 years of age. She might have been 17. She might have been 15. I can't remember. Three decades is a long time to remember all the details. I did know who it was, even though she wrote anonymously. I don't remember why I knew, but I did know. But she wrote, every once in a while, life questions pop into my head. And most of the time, I can either answer them myself or ask someone who can help me. This question, however, has not been answered, and my curiosity has definitely grown. I will do my best to express my question clearly. When a baptized man and woman marry, they are physically bonded. Marriage is until death do us part, if all goes well, considering today's marriages. Sad, but true, yes? If Christ returned while this couple was still alive, they would then be spirit beings in the kingdom of God, given they have God's Holy Spirit. I found in Matthew 22:30, Mark 12:25, and Luke 20, verse 35, that marriage is not possible as a spirit being. My question, which will be broken into other sections and topics, starts as, what happens to those feelings? Togetherness is one thing. But a bond, and she has that underlined, is another. And that sounds so much better when you care for someone to a great extent. Another question. Can we manifest into physical beings and have that bond? I looked through my Bible concordance, Strong's concordance, and found Isaiah 30, verse 20, which says that we can show ourselves as physical teachers. I suppose that my main question has to do with marriage and where the feelings go and how they look at your, how you look at your ex-spouse during Christ's reign. I can see it now. Hey, how's it going, Bob? Bob is just a name. I mean, you know everything about them. You had, have had good and bad times together, and you have shared affection. How does a person, or I guess in this case, spirit being, just drop all of this. I understand that you can be together and you can have strong feelings still, but there's a difference, correct? 
My next question may sound like I should have, like an I should have known question. I don't look at sex as such an important thing for me as a teenager. I understand and believe in God's law about abstinence, but out of curiosity, I'm asking. Sex is a very special thing that God gave man. When a couple have this commitment, feelings of love increase, and the sense of security is there. It makes your marital bond more official. We can't have this as spirit beings, correct? Can we change to our physical selves with our spouse that we had before change to spirit beings and have that? Another branch to take on this, are you still with me? If the last question was answered yes, if at all, would be, can children come into the picture at this point in time? What if Christ comes back and, a, and as a couple you haven't started your family? If you couldn't have this family, wouldn't there be something missing? One of my sources said, or asked, uh, that I asked told me that God may not change a person to a spirit being if they are not ready. Is that true? Would he allow a couple to start a much-wanted family? At this time, there are so many questions racing through my mind. I know that some of these questions are impossible to answer until man is actually living through the time of Christ's return. But if you know an answer or two to any of these, I would love to hear them. I happen to be very intrigued by this subject, and others may be as well. I have never heard a sermon of its type is there enough scripture, questions, and answers to make one? Remember, she said she had been thinking about these things for two weeks. The remainder of the letter was handwritten. And it says, I've run out of time in my typing class. I thought that I would ask, since it has been bugging me for so long. I also hope that staying anonymous with a desire to learn about this will maybe trigger a discussion or a sermon, my preference personally. Thank you for your time, Kansas City East YOU member. I was uh, intrigued by the letter, very well written from a young person. And as I said, I, I didn't know who this was. She was a very fine young lady, very much involved in the activities of the church. I think she was coming along toward conversion. I don't know exactly what happened after I left that area and the apostasy. Well, I guess the apostasy set in while I was there because we had uh, the church forming there. But I don't remember all the details, what happened to her. Haven't heard from her from that time. But I can only imagine that some of our young people here, and there are many of you, have similar questions. I'm reminded in Genesis, the 18th chapter, of something that took place. First of all, the, the boldness that, that Abram had, or Abraham had, in talking to God. And I was very thankful that this young lady would ask these questions. She would be so open to ask them. Maybe she was embarrassed by them, although uh, we had a very good relationship with the young people there. But nevertheless, it reminds me of, of two things. And this may seem unrelated, and it is in a way, but there, there's something to it. Let me go to Genesis 18. 
And I'll begin in verse 22. It says, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. This is when the uh, angels and, and the one who became Jesus Christ were there, just before the, uh, the destruction of Sodom. Verse 23, And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And then Abraham answered and said, Well, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, Well, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be 40 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. Verse 30. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it for if I find 30 there. Well, as we know, he gets down to 20, and then he gets down to 10. Now, I find it interesting in two ways. First of all, there's nothing wrong with answering an honest question, whether it's misguided or not. This young lady was asking a question kind of like Abraham was of God. And he kept lowering it, and that might have become tedious to God. But there's another point here, and that is, what was behind his question? What was behind this getting down to 10 people? Well, I wrote one time, and some people took, took it a different way, but it would seem like he had two daughters that fled with, with Lot and his wife. That was four people. But it also talks about, do you have any other uh, daughters, sons, or daughters? Sons-in-law, daughters-in-laws. It would seem like there could be as many as 10 family members there in Sodom. I'll leave that up to you to decide, but the point is that he was getting to something. And when he got down to 10, he must have assumed that there were 10 righteous in the city. He knew that his nephew lived there and his family. And so there was something behind his question. And oftentimes, the questions that people ask are not the real questions. It's the question behind the question that is important. And I think that when we look at this young lady's questions, she was saying, in a way, and I don't think she had a bad attitude at all, even if this was her thought, but in a way she was saying, if we read between the lines, when Christ returns, that's going to mess up all the things that I hope for. Now, a decade earlier, going back 40 years, there was a young man who expressed it exactly that way. He expressed it this way. He said, I know that you and my father want Christ to come soon. He said, but I don't. 
I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to make my mark in the world. You see, he was a very driven individual. He was educated to be an engineer. He wanted to work as an engineer, but more so, he wanted an engineering firm. And he eventually got married, had children. He had his engineering firm. He had dozens of employees. But a couple of things happened over a period of time. One of his children had a rather pesky health issue that kept him up at night, every night. One of those things that kind of wear you out. She eventually got over it, but it was one of those things that for months they struggled with it. And they found that having children uh, brings a lot of responsibility. And it's not always the uh, fluffy, nice things that you think of with children. He also became disillusioned a bit in business, and eventually the firm that he started, he just gave the keys back to the bank and said, you can have it. Not that he was in debt, he wasn't. But there were situations that came up, I won't go into the details, because I don't know a lot of the details, I know a little bit. But he just said, you know, it's easier to work for somebody else than to have all this responsibility on his shoulders. And so I think that he probably came to the place, I don't know, but I'm guessing he probably came to the place where he was like his father, and like me, hoping for the kingdom to come very soon. But again, was this a bad attitude, or was it just where he was in life? But the bottom line was, Christ's return will mess up my life. It will keep me from doing the things that I want to do. So I want to tell all of our young people the following. Christ is going to return sometime in the future. And that is good news. It's good news for this world. I'm not talking about you as an individual at the moment, but it's good news for the world. Because when we look at what happened on October the 7th this year, it was a terrible day for those people living in Israel. And what has followed has been a terrible, terrible time for those people living in Gaza. Those who were not a part of the attacks, those who may not have supported the attacks, although honestly many people do, but nevertheless, they're in the category of what we might say is innocence. I don't know that they're as innocent as sometimes they're portrayed, but no doubt there were those who did not like Hamas, did not like what they were doing, and yet they were caught in the middle of it. I've watched some of the documentaries on World War II and the island hopping, and where the Japanese had dug in on Iwo Jima and uh, various other islands. And the native people didn't start a war. They didn't want a war but they caught caught between two giants fighting one another, and many of them died as a result. You see, Christ's return is going to put an end to all that. And while we may look at it from our own personal perspective, which is natural and normal, the return of Christ is a very positive thing. And the sooner, truly, the better. The second point that I want to make is that 
that the time between now and then is going to be traumatic. And it is going to be difficult to live through it. And those of you who are younger, I have absolutely no doubt are going to see some of those times. Some times that I've never seen, sometimes far worse than those of us, many of us who are older have seen. Some may have gone to Vietnam. I don't think there are many World War II veterans here. There might be a Korean veteran. I don't know of any. But there are some very traumatic times that are coming ahead. What we went through in, with COVID is, is nothing compared to what's going to happen yet in the future. And so Christ is going to return. That's good news. The bad news is that it's going to be very traumatic between now and then, and I can't change that for you. I remember a young lady many years ago, this goes back to, uh, again, to the 1980s, who wanted to quit the church. And the reason she wanted to quit the church was because all these terrible things were going to happen. And she just didn't want to want to hear it or take it. Sometimes when you give advice, people actually take it. And that's what happened in this case. I, I just explained to her that, well, we don't know when all these things are going to happen, but they're going to happen sooner or later. But hiding your head in the sand and not wanting to look at it is not going to be helpful. Isn't it better to know what's coming and to know that there is a way of escape and to be able to put these things in perspective? Well, I said more than that, but that was kind of the gist of it. And she listened, and she's still with us to this very day, something like uh, close to 40 years later. That's good. Sometimes people do hear. And they do hear sometimes logic as opposed to just looking at things emotionally. Another point is that there have always been difficult times. My parents' generation and the generation of many of you in this room went through the, uh, the Great Depression. I don't know what it was like. I can read stories about it. I can hear stories about it. But I didn't live through the Great Depression, what it was like for people then. They also went through World War II. And many young men went off to fight for their country and didn't return. Or if they did, it was in a pine box. Most people did survive. Most people, even in Russia, where they lost some estimates as much as 27 million lives were lost in Russia. Think about it, 27 million. We've never seen anything like that. Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf Wars, what's happening over in, in uh, Israel or the Ukraine, nothing like what happened back then. There is coming a time when it will pale World War II and World War I. But they didn't choose to be born then. They just happened to be born at that time, and they went through the Depression. Some people of their generation, the Dust Bowl, and had to leave their farms and their, their properties and go elsewhere. They didn't have to go off and fight in World War II or get the letters from the State Department, the War Department, that their son was not coming back. 
There are many biblical examples of tough times. We know of Joseph. Joseph had a pretty rough time. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. Imagine that. Any of you young people, I hope you have a better relationship with your brothers and sisters than that. But think about it. Your own family sells you into slavery. So in slavery, you do the right thing. You're industrious. You serve the person you've been sold to as a servant. And then we read in Genesis 39 that a little bit of a problem came up. This is a problem that I think that some young men in their carnality and without good understanding would think this was not such a bad deal, but it was. In Genesis 39, verse 7, it says, It came to pass after these things that his master's wife, that's Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Nothing subtle about this. Lie with me. Nothing subtle at all. Now, I, I imagine there'd probably be some young fellows think, oh, wow, that'd be great. I mean, being honest, I think there are those that would. And he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. He's given me all this responsibility, and I have all this freedom within the house to do all these things. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The, the term great wickedness has to do with adult, adultery and idolatry, which is a form of adultery. How can I do this great sin or great wickedness, and sin against God. Now, this is before the Ten Commandments, but very clearly, it's one of the Ten Commandments. He knew it. He understood it. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. He, he had no choice. He had to go in and do his work. And none of the men of the house uh, was inside, that she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. She must have held on pretty tight. And he wanted to get out away from that. He was fleeing fornication. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in a, to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Really a nice gal, the kind of person you really would want to marry anyway, when you think about it. I hope you know that's tongue-in-cheek. I think you do. Verse 15, it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So, as we know, the end result is he's thrown into prison. But you can't keep a good man down, even within the prison. He became a lead person. The prisoner, the, the, the guard that was there, gave him certain responsibilities within the prison. But you have to remember, he was sold into slavery at age 17. 17. And whether you're talking about 16 or 18, it's pretty young, isn't it? And... He had 13 years 
of being in slavery before he was finally let loose. Now, I'd like to turn over to Genesis 42 and pick up something. This was this wonderful story. I, I, I don't try to read it very often because I don't care how many times I read it, I get all choked up when he shows himself to his brothers. But I'd like to read one verse here. That's verse 21. When his brothers begin to get into this situation where um, Joseph tells them that I want you to send your younger brother to me and he was not going to um, let him off the hook there they began to talk amongst themselves and Joseph talked in the Egyptian language they, they didn't know it you know 13 years from 17 to 30 a person can change an awful lot and the way that he dressed the way that he groomed himself perhaps with a beard, who knows what. Uh, he looked different than they remembered, and he spoke a different language, and his voice probably lowered a bit, so they didn't recognize him. And they started talking to one another, and they said to one another, verse 21, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. and We would not hear, therefore this distress has come upon us. They realized that the situation they were in there, that God was reversing it. They didn't know it was Joseph, but they saw there is retribution, that what goes around comes around. They may not have used that expression, but they saw that. They recognized it. But notice the anguish that was in his soul when he pleaded with us not to be sold into slavery. It was a traumatic time. Now, Joseph didn't choose to be born way back then. He didn't choose to be one of 12 brothers. He didn't choose to have those dreams that came to him that were so real that he couldn't withhold telling others about them. Now, maybe he could have conducted himself differently where his brothers wouldn't have hated him so much. You see, God was working something out here. And he didn't choose that life. And for 13 years... His life was not very good. It was not too bad at times, but it wasn't the best. He was a servant, a slave. We can look at the time of Daniel, and I think I mentioned this in a previous sermon. But consider being uprooted from your home because an enemy nation that hates you and that you hate them, you know, fear them, hate them, whatever, I'm not talking about we hate as, as we shouldn't do, but nevertheless, the enemy. When I grew up, we, we grew up talking about the Japs. Don't like that term anymore. But as kids, that's the term we use because it was just a few years after World War II. And so living in Alaska at the time, six years of age, my friends, we use that derogatory term and other derogatory terms. That's just the way we grew up. But imagine that they had won the war, that the Germans or the Japanese had won the war and carted us off into another country. Just imagine what that was like for Daniel 
and his three friends. Imagine how apprehensive you would be not knowing what's going to happen next, just knowing that you're going to a strange land and you have no idea what's on the other end. Kind of like the Jews during World War II being carved off, and it wasn't just Jews, there were others as well, into labor camps and not knowing what was ahead of them. And what was ahead of them was a lot worse than what happened to Daniel and his three friends. Of course, being thrown into a fiery furnace uh, was not exactly a, a picnic, not something easy. Or being thrown into a lion's den. We, we know the answer to the question. We've seen the rest of the story, but they didn't know what the rest of the story was. These were not easy times for them. They probably just wanted to grow up and get married and have children and grandchildren and be like everybody else, but they didn't have that opportunity. They didn't choose to be born then. That's when they were born. There's a time of Esther, which is not that far removed from the time of Daniel. And we see that here was this young girl, and she was taken to be in a beauty contest. Now, maybe our young ladies would relate to that. I think a lot of young ladies, at least in the past, maybe not today, maybe not in the church, but I've known a few in the church, they would like to marry a prince. A prince. I remember a girl many years ago, she wanted to marry, uh, was it Prince William or Prince Harry, one or the other? She just almost worshipped him. I, maybe that's too strong, but she, somehow in her mind, that's what she wanted to do. I don't think that, I don't know if she really thought how reasonable that was, but that was what she was looking forward to. So maybe someone would say, well, Esther, boy, she married the king. She's the queen. I just imagine she had to share the king with a harem. We read of a situation where she hadn't seen the king for, what was a month or something like that? And in order to see the king, she had to hope that he would hold up the scepter. I don't think that Esther's life was the fairy tale that some people like to think of it as, but you know what she did? She saved the Jewish race. She saved the Jewish race. Now, when you think about that, how important is your life to go just the way that you want it to go or to have the opportunity of saving the lives of a lot of people? Christ gave his life for all of us. Who are we willing to give our life for? Let's go over to the book of Ruth. Take another young lady. after Judges. During the time of the Judges, which is one of the worst times possible, if you read the, the book of Judges, you find that everybody was doing his own thing, and a lot of terrible things happened during that time. And so we read in verse 1 of Ruth 1, it came to pass in the days when the Judges ruled. So this is the time setting. And yet, even in the time of the Judges, there's this little idyllic story, you might say, uh, something that is positive that is taking place here. But was it all positive? It says that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Benjamin, 
uh, Judah went, uh, Benjamin, Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of the son, two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Now I, I just point this out because what we find is that Ruth's husband died. And at a reasonably young age apparently, at least not that many years into the marriage that speaks of 10 years. Was it a full 10 years? It doesn't seem to indicate that it was uh, necessarily a full 10 years. She might have been married five years, seven years, eight years, or even less. But the point is that life didn't go exactly as she had planned. We don't read of any children here, so the length of time they have been married may have been a short time, we just don't know, but she must have been all excited about marrying this young man from Israel. But it didn't go the way that she planned. Life doesn't always go the way that we plan it out. We can look at life as, well, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have children, I'm going to have grandchildren, I'm going to live to be 90 years old and still be playing basketball, you know. I used to wonder why people retired from playing basketball or some other sport. Well, now I know. <laughs> but it didn't make sense back then. Why, why would you stop if you still seem to be healthy? At least outwardly appear to be healthy. Life has a way of, of teaching us some serious lessons, doesn't it? So here was this young woman, and we read about her... The courtship of, well, I don't even know if we can call it a courtship, but it was exactly how you describe it, but the relationship between uh, Ruth and Boaz. And it's a, it's a wonderful, not, not just a story, but it tells us about the lineage of, of David. And there's more than just a, a love story here. There's a lot more to the book of Ruth, but I don't have time to go into it right now. The point is that for Ruth, Everything didn't turn out just as she had planned. Over in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was called as a very young man, probably a teenager, maybe early 20s, but he was, he was called into God's service relatively young. And if you would think, there are a lot of young people think, oh, I'd love to be a minister, I'd love to do this. Well, I didn't want to be a minister when I was your age because... That's just not what I wanted to do. Uh, put me out in the woods. Let me cut trees. That's, that's, that's more exciting. But at any rate, there are young people who think that if they could be a servant of God, they could be one of the apostles, they could be whatever, they might think that is exciting. Now, Jeremiah really didn't want uh, to be called for this job, but he was called for it. And he's thrust into the situation. And then in the 
12th chapter of Jeremiah, verse 1. Uh, Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Eternal, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. I have these life questions that come up. And I'd like to know I've been thinking about them for two weeks. I need to know the answers to them. Let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Why is it that the bad guys seem to have it better than we do? That's the question he asked God. Was he in a bad attitude? No, I don't think that we read that he's in a bad attitude. But God did realize that he needed to deal with Jeremiah a certain way. He says, you have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. In other words, you gave them life. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. Oh, they talk about you. But that's not the way they really are. But you, O oh Lord, know me. You, you know me. You've seen me. You have tested my heart toward you. He says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Take care of them and prepare them for the day of the slaughter. Now, that might be a little bit of a bad attitude there. He says, how long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said... He will not see our final end. Now, how does God respond to him? Well, God is kind to Jeremiah. He appreciates honest questions. But he realized that Jeremiah needed to buck it up a little bit. He needed to toughen up. He was not to wallow in self-pity because he had a lot ahead of him. He says, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? How are you going to run with horses if you can't even run with footmen? And if the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? So when things really get rough, how are you going to do? You can't, you mean, you can't even handle it right now? How are you going to do when things get really rough? And he says, gives him a clue of just how bad it is. It says, even, verse 6, your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. They're trying to set you up for a fall, perhaps to kill you. That's how bad it's going to get for you, Jeremiah. The point is that sometimes life throws things at us that we're not prepared for. God knows that we're prepared. He's preparing us for something. But we have to take life as it comes. Let me give you four points to consider. First of all, God brought his faithful servants through these trials. He brought them through them. Whether you're talking about Esther or Ruth or Joseph or Daniel or Meshach, or Abednego, or Jeremiah. No matter who you're talking to, God brought them through these trials. He preserved their lives. He worked things out for them. The reason that 
things worked out for them. These all put God first in their lives. When you look at Daniel and his three friends, it's very clear they put God first. When you look at Ruth, she changed religions. We don't know too much there, but you look at Jeremiah, he was a servant of God. God was important to him. He prayed to God. He asked God questions that were on his mind. God respected that. But God had to toughen him up a little bit. He had to give him a, a gentle lecture, as it were, to help him to see a bigger picture than just what he was seeing there at the moment. And it's important that we know that God exists because it's clear these people did know that God exists. And if you're a young person, I don't care if you're 14 or 15 or 16 or even younger, and you can read, you can read our literature such as the real God, Proofs or Promises, the Bible, Fact or Fiction. It's not good enough to follow mom and dad. You've got to prove it for yourself. You've got to know what the truth is. You have to know that God exists. Mr. Smith's booklet on evolution, evolution or creation, what, uh, and creation, what both sides miss. The struggle that he had in writing that booklet, I know he had it because I was working with him on it. I mean, he, he did the writing, but giving advice on it was to make it able to reach a more educated audience such as certainly a senior high school class or university level, and yet keep it on a level that was important for everyone and to be able to balance that out. So for some of you, it'll be no problem to read. For some of you, it might be a little bit more difficult, but it's not that big. It's an important booklet. And you've got to prove these things for yourself, just as all these other individuals that serve God. You've got to prove First of all, that God exists and that the Bible is his word. You've got to prove that. Secondarily, by studying God's word, there's something about it that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith is built when we study the word of God. And I'm not talking about our young people doing hours-long study, although I know that can be done. But set aside a few minutes each day to read the Word of God. And here in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, in verse 24, it tells us about a relatively young man, although he was obviously older than the audience that I'm really addressing today, the, the main audience. But it tells us something that's very important. And it's talking about Moses, and it says in verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age. So exactly what does that mean? He became of age. Would he turn 20 or 30? We know he left and uh, around 40 years of age. But by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, I want to go back to my roots. He obviously knew what his roots were for who knows what reason, but he knew. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, the pleasures of sin for a season. 
Now that is a choice that our young people have to make. We can go off into this world and we can do the things of this world or we can choose a higher calling. One is pleasures of sin for a season because it comes to an end. And when the end comes, and I don't mean the end of your life, I'm, I'm speaking just after a period of time, it comes crashing down on you. And God has a way of beating us up. If we choose a wrong path, then there are consequences for that. Marrying the wrong person, marrying outside the church. Oh yes, sometimes, sometimes people come into the church, that happens, but for every time that it does, you can probably point out about four or five that don't. Choosing carefully on those things. The passing of pleasures of sin. You can choose to disregard God's law when it comes to dating and what you do on a date. You can choose that. No one can stop you. But there's a penalty that sets in at some point in time. Or you can do it God's way and it works out much better. It says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And I think I talked about this not long ago, that he had everything he wanted there. The son of Pharaoh's daughter, the palace. He had the best music he could listen to, live music. He had the best foods. He had it all. He had prestige. Josephus, I think, says that he was a, a general in the, the army. Speculation. I, Josephus says a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily subscribe to. But the point is, he had it all. And he chose a different way. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In other words, he looked to something greater than the here and now. And that's such a hard thing to do. It's hard enough for those of us who are older. But when we're young, all we see is what's right ahead of us right now. These questions have been on my mind for two weeks. I've been thinking about them a long time, you see. I'm sure she probably had been thinking about them more than two weeks, but they were more on her mind at that point in time. So these individuals that we read of in Scripture put God first in their lives. God was real to them. If you think that he wasn't real to them, then you stand in front of a furnace with someone ready to throw you in or ready to be thrown into a lion's den. God was real to them. Even though their lives had taken a very different turn than what they planned on, they, they still had their faith in God. We have to know that God exists. You know, I was listening last night to uh, a podcast a Living Youth Program podcast by Mr. Smith and Mr. Robinson. Uh, number 71 has to do with why do you want the millennium? They had five points. Or the kingdom of God. I think it was the state of the millennium. And it would do all of our young people well to think, why do I want the millennium to come? Not just what those two individuals say, which is great, it's wonderful, 
but why do I want the millennium to come? Instead of thinking, why don't I want it to come? Why not turn around and start thinking, well, what is in it for me? And when I say for me, that may include a much broader audience. It may include the world. But so often as human beings, we think only what's in it for us right now. It's not wrong to think about what's in it for us because that's what the disciples did when a rich man came and Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to go through an eye of a needle than it is to enter the kingdom of, of heaven or the kingdom of God. And the disciples said, well, what, what's in it for us? And he said, well, you're going to have 12 thrones. Each of you will sit on one of the 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Now, the here and now is, is right before us Sitting on 12 thrones, that's off in the distance someplace. And so it's easy to think, I want what's, what's good now. There's another scripture, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. And this is important to realize that with all the things that you will see in your lifetime, and you have no idea what that'll be, I have no idea what's ahead of us. Well, I have ideas. You may have ideas. But, but what exactly is ahead for you? What is exactly ahead for me? We, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But there are things that are going to happen to us that we never anticipate. But in verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So whatever is ahead of you, you don't know whether you're going to have some terrible disease that you wake up some morning with, or whether you have some injury that transforms your life. I've known a couple of men that were quadriplegics, and their life was changed just like that. One fell out of a tree, another one was in a car accident on his graduation night, thrown from the car, and quadriplegic. Now, that's probably not going to happen with most of you. I hope not. But you just don't know what's coming in life. And so it's important to have the big picture. God is not going to put you through something that you are not able to stand if you put him as the center of your life. And even under the best of circumstances, there are things that are going to be thrown at us in the future that we really need that, that knowledge. God is in charge. President Eisenhower, former General Eisenhower, who oversaw Operation Overlord, the Normandy invasion, when he was a child, was playing with his siblings a card game with his mother. And they were grousing about the cards they were dealt. If you've played cards, I think you can relate to that. What a lousy hand this is. And that's almost every hand, seems like. And every once in a while you get a great hand and, ooh, well, that's good. But most of the time, it's not all that you want. And they were grousing about it, and finally Mrs. Eisenhower put her cards down and 
said, young folks, children, put your cards down. She said, you've been dealt a hand here, and you have no control over it whatsoever. The only thing you have control over is how you play the hand. And she said, in life, you're going to be dealt a lot of cards that you have no control over. But learn to play them the best that you can. Wonderful advice for young people and for those of us who are older as well. You have no control over your outside world. But there are things that you can control. And so you need to play your cards well. Not craftily in a wrong way, but play them well. There are different stages in life. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, Paul makes this statement in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. Do we realize that, that when we're children, we think differently than adults? But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, what we see there is that Paul is saying that there are different stages. He doesn't go through all the stages of life, but he says, when I was a child, I thought this way. When I became a man, I thought differently. And the point is that we all go through different stages in life. I've probably told this story before. This happens when we get older, I'm sorry. But I remember going to the movies when I was a child. I used to go on Saturday afternoon. I wasn't in the church at the time. But I'd go, well, even when I first started studying, I might have still gone. I'm not sure because I didn't really understand everything. But I'd go to the movies on Saturday afternoon. But mostly... We wanted to go to these cowboy movies. Every week there'd be a different one. And we wanted to see the barroom scene. You know, that's where they get into a fight and they're throwing people over the, the bar, crashing into the mirror and bottles and everything going every which way and throwing people out the windows into the street and crashing bottles and chairs over the heads of others. That's what we went for. That was... A guy thing, okay? Girls, maybe you don't relate to that. But that's a guy thing. We, we like to break things up. And to watch that, that's what we went for. And you know the part of the movies that we hated the most was when somehow they had a guitar in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and you had the singing cowboy. Or the mushy cowboy. Now they didn't have, they didn't have any love scenes as such, but there were, you know, the, the implication was that these two people liked, we, we didn't care about that. <laughs> Just get the guns out, start shooting, uh, crash things over one another. That's the way we were at a certain age. I don't remember exactly what age that was, 10, 11, 12, I'm, I'm not sure. But at some point in time, Frankie and Fabian and Annette and all these other, uh, you know, people that would dance around on the beach, these, uh, beach boy type movies, they suddenly became interesting. 
And as often said, uh, and there are a few people that haven't heard this, I'm sure. You know, have you, have you ever sat in a movie, especially if you're a young person, and there's this, this love scene, you know, there, somebody's about ready to kiss somebody else, and, and you find yourself... You're moving with the actor, you know? Now, she's not there, hopefully, in, in next to you, but, uh, you know, you, you start getting into it. Well, the, the point is this. When you're 10 years of age, you might like the barroom scene, the fight, but when you're 15 or 16 or 18, you have different appetites, don't you? You know, a five-year-old may think that the greatest thing in the world is a French fry or a chocolate ice cream cone. That's not exactly what you think of later on. I had a little procedure on my nose here uh, Thursday, I guess. They took this nitrogen and sprayed it on my nose because I had a little lesion that I wanted to have taken off. And uh, no big deal, except that my nose turned red, a little bit. And my wife put some makeup on it for here, so uh, it doesn't show up too much. But it, it'll be fine, there's no problem. It was not cancerous, but uh, anyway, the doctor thought it'd be good to take it off, and I did too, because I'd been there a while. So my nose was a little bit red, and I told my wife last night, I said, uh, Rudolph was my favorite reindeer. And she's saying, what? What's gotten into you? Well, I had to get real close to her, and then, oh, she, then she made the connection. So for the last couple days or so, I don't know why, but the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer has been in my mind. And you know how it is when you get a song in your mind, you can't get it out? Now, that's a really dumb song. But there's a time in life when that might be your favorite song. But then you grow up, and maybe it's all I, all I need from you, whatever that one is from Phantom of the Opera, or that other song that um, who was it, Susan Boyle sang on, uh, Amer on England's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, can't remember, it comes from uh, Les Miserables. Beautiful song. I, I, I wonder how many of our young people ever saw that audition uh, of Susan Boyle on Britain's Got Talent. I've, I've got to find out because if, if you haven't, uh, you, you need to see that. It's, it's, there's a huge lesson in it for, for everyone. But that's aside. The point is that our tastes change, don't they? They change over a period of time. So let's answer more directly her questions with that background. What happens to those feelings? She's saying, what happens if you were married and you love this person? What happens to those feelings when you change the spirit being? Well, the question is not whether the feelings will be there, but how they're expressed. Now, I know that's a hard concept to understand, but feelings can be expressed differently. When you are first married, you express your feelings more physically. But as you get older and more mature and your bodies begin to break down a little bit, you love that person even more than you did before. 
And, and you see an older couple, maybe in their 80s, certainly not young like me, but in their 80s. <laughs> you know, and, and you see them the way that they interact, and you see that love and affection that they have for each other. They're not expressing it in the same way that they did when they were young, but the feelings are still going to be there. It's a matter of how they are expressed. And beyond that, I don't have an answer. As this young lady said, she knows that some things we won't understand until that time. She asked the question, can we manifest into physical beings and have that bond or that affection? My answer to that is, has God given us a dessert before the broccoli? Do we think that what he's given to us in this physical life is better than being a spirit being? I, I like the way that uh, Mr. Smith uh, passed this on to me, how uh, Mr. Rand Millich, giving a sermon on subjects similar to this, said, do you think that God is wringing his hands in heaven above, looking down and thinking, oh man, I wish I could be a physical human being? and experience all the things physical human beings do. You know, Christ came down to the earth. He was never married, never had physical children. But he did something that every one of us are thankful for, and we'll certainly, not only do we thank him right now, one day we'll see him face to face and be able to thank him for it. We'll no doubt have more exciting things to do Sometimes when you're a young person, you think there's the most exciting thing to do is what well, you fill in the blank. But let me ask you, when Super Bowl Sunday comes around, what are you going to be doing on that day? A lot of the people that think there's, in other words, there are a lot of things in life that can be exciting. And they all have to be put into the proper perspective. What if Christ comes back before a couple starts a family? Well, you know what? There are a lot of people that don't have children. I know that one firsthand. And that's not necessarily what you planned. You had your life planned this way, and God, for whatever reason, either caused or allowed it to go this way. Now, as, as, as one, I've come to accept that. Would I rather have children? Yes, but I've accepted the fact that what God has given to me is so much better than what many people in this life have. Those quadriplegics who would like to have gotten married had children, they couldn't. And so there are a lot of reasons why people don't have children other than just the fact that Christ comes back sooner. Over in Isaiah, the 56th chapter, it tells us something, gives us a little encouragement. I realize I'm talking about things from a, a logical perspective and that there's the emotion that each of us have. And it's, it's not easy to necessarily put yourself into uh, an age that is older. But in Isaiah 56, verse 3, it says, Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Eternal has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. An individual who may have been made a eunuch by a foreign power or however it was, say, well, I'm a dry tree. In other words, I don't have any children. For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, some of this just simply takes faith. It just takes faith. I, I really would encourage all of you to read Ecclesiastes. I'll just turn over there very briefly. Ecclesiastes 11. We often read this during the feast because Ecclesiastes was read by the Jews during the feast. But it tells us that there are these stages in life and we should take each stage in which we find ourselves and live appropriately. He says in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 11, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Boy, you can play basketball, you can run like a gazelle. I, I, I was watching a baseball game one time and the, the, the warming up and just watching these guys lope across the field after shagging fly balls and I'm thinking, now maybe I wasn't that good, but, but I could do that at one time. I would, I would shuffle across the field now. But that's something that God has given you. A young man, physical strength, and a young lady. And, and enjoy that, because that's, that's a gift of God. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Yes, live as a young person, but know that for all the, these, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. It's here for a certain period of time, and it flees away. It's gone. And then he tells us in the 12th chapter, I won't read that, but basically he says, well, I'll just read the first part. Remember, now you're a creator in the days of your youth. Put God first in your life. It'll all work out. It really will. It may not work out the way that you plan it yourself, but in the end, at the end of the day, you will thank God for what he's worked out in your life. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And then he describes so to speak, the, the final days of our life. So enjoy your youthfulness. It's fine to have questions, but don't live your life out of fear that something you want won't come. We're only here for a short time, and during that time, we go through several stages in life. Even marriages themselves go through different stages. The honeymoon, Children, up late at night, you know, taking care of the children and so forth. We get busy on the job. Our work is tying us up for a lot of things. And then eventually the children leave. We have the stages of children, infants, you know, on up through teen years and then the empty nest. And some marriages don't last after the empty nest because it's a change. It's something that happens, a stage of life. It's difficult for us to understand the stage of life until we live it. Understand that. 
There's much about life for which we have absolutely no control. But take each stage as it comes and control what you have the ability to control. And never take shortcuts. You go up in the mountains here, North Carolina, I know this because I've been there. You're running late, and if you take this left turn here, it ought to take you where you want to go. It doesn't. It never does. You can do that in the prairies or out in the Midwest, but don't try it in the mountains. It only takes you in the wrong direction. Eventually you figure that out and you have to go back and retrace your steps and start over again. And then you really are late. That's the way life is. Don't try to take shortcuts. They only cause hurt. Always put God first. Make sure that whatever stage of life you are, that God is a part of your life and that he is at the center of your life. No matter how dark life may look at any given moment, it will work out if you put God first.